Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. This episode, Does Success at Work Lead to Failure at Home?, is a talk Dr. Armand Nicolai Jr. gave at a Marketplace Forum Network event in Boston. Dr. Nicolai's clinical work and research has focused on the impact of absent parents on the emotional development of children and young adults. He is well known for his book, The Question of God, C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud debate God, love, sex, and the meaning of life. They say that when a person receives applause before he speaks, that's an expression of hope. If the applause is during his talking, it's an expression of faith, and if it's afterward, it's an expression of charity. I have been asked to speak on the family, as you know from the title, and uh, my research interests have been in, for the past 20 years or more, in the impact of absent parents on the emotional development of children. And although I understand this group meets because of an interest in integrating faith and vocation, it was suggested that I might, before I start, say a word about my own personal faith. And uh, I must confess that I find it very difficult to talk publicly about my faith, because I consider it very personal, very private. But suffice it to say that I first heard the gospel story, first understood it, when I was quite young, many years before I left for college. I realized then that if it were true, if the historicity of the Gospels was sound, that it would be the most important information that we could ever embrace. And at that time, I uh, came to know the central figure of that story, realizing that it was possible to have a personal relationship with him. I've found out over the years that that uh, relationship became the primary motivating factor and the central organizing factor in my life. And driving here this morning, I realized, I don't think I've ever said this before publicly, but I've said this to my children often, and that is that everything in my life, both professional and personal, that's happened positively, I can relate either directly or indirectly to that relationship that began many years ago. Now, It's very difficult to talk about the family without sounding political. I mean, it's become a politically charged subject these days. And I just want to say that I have absolutely no political interest. I am probably the most non-political animal that can exist. And and although I've become known by my colleagues as a child advocate and as a strong proponent of family values, I didn't always begin that way. I began with quite a radical view of the family. I really couldn't understand why people had children when I was in medical school, not married. But I changed gradually, kind of reluctantly over time, with a great deal of resistance. And many factors contributed to this change. One was, when I finished my medical training, I was offered a position as a psychiatrist to the students and faculty at Harvard. And at that time, about 60 to 70 percent of the students came from private schools, just the opposite of what it is today. And in my clinical work, I began to see students from privileged backgrounds 
who presented a, a specific cluster of symptoms. One, they had very low self-esteem and feelings of worthlessness. They had an inability to establish close, trusting relationships with other people. They had difficulty with authority, a lot of difficulty with authority, an inability to get their work done, and a feeling out of sorts with themselves and with the world generally. And I also noticed that there was a great deal of anger in them, anger bordering on rage that was quite close to the surface. And what these students had in common was that their care as infants and young children had been relegated to nurses and nannies. They had relatively little physical or emotional contact with their parents. And most of them had been sent to boarding school at a very early age. Now, during these years, I also worked at the Boston Evening Clinic, which was a clinic for the poor from the inner city. And much to my surprise, I noticed that same cluster of symptoms among the adolescents and young adults there. And I also observed that like the wealthy Harvard students, these patients from poor families also had very little contact with their parents. The father was usually not there, and the mother was out working long hours to survive. Infant care was relegated to a neighbor, to a grandmother, or to whomever was available. And though they shared a common background of inaccessible parents, and the same symptoms as, as young adults, I observed one marked difference between these two groups, the wealthy students, college students, and the very poor young adults from the inner city. I noticed that those from wealthy backgrounds turned their anger inward, became quite depressed, and they expressed it in self-destructive behavior, heavy drinking, psychoactive drugs, sexual acting out, and so forth. Those from poor backgrounds tended to turn their anger outward and to act it out into antisocial behavior that often got them into difficulty. And at that time, I attributed no significance, really, to the observation that both of these groups had in common inaccessible or absent parents. One other early experience that I think helped change me. When I was a medical student, I uh, knew a family that I was quite close to and I admired them greatly. Both husband and wife were physicians, prominent physicians, and both served on the faculty of a leading medical school. They had two beautiful children and a maid to care for them. The mother was a model of a loving and caring parent, as well as a compassionate physician. I really liked and admired her greatly. Yet I saw that family end in divorce, and the children developed some of the symptoms that I've just described. Both children needed psychiatric help and the whole family becoming alienated from one another. So I'd like to ask a question, a rhetorical question, and that is what causes families, relatively affluent families with all the advantages that money and education can offer, to fall apart? We don't need to look around very far to see that this is very, very common in our society. What makes them fail? How do we explain the feelings of emptiness, of low self-esteem and depression among the spouses, and the anger, rebelliousness, and incapacitating emotional conflict among the children? Conversely, what about families that succeed? How about successful families? 
families that not only stay together, but develop strong, stable, supportive relationships and thriving, caring, emotionally healthy offspring. Do these successful families have common denominators? Can we apply this knowledge to even our own families and make use of that knowledge? Well, you may say, why talk about the family? I mean, let's face it, we all make mistakes. For two people to live together successfully it takes two very mature people. And unfortunately, maturity is a lifelong process. You know, there aren't uh, any of us that do not suffer from pockets of immaturity. So we all fail in the family, and why talk about it? You just make everyone feel uncomfortable and guilty. Well, all you need to do is to think for about 30 seconds about the influence of your family on who you are and what you are as an adult, and you'll realize that our family experience is the most important experience of our lives, the most meaningful. There's certainly no human interaction has greater impact on our lives than our family experience. And on the negative side, the breakdown of the family contributes significantly to the major problems confronting our society today. Research data make unmistakably clear a strong relationship between broken or disordered families and the drug epidemic, the increase in out-of-wedlock pregnancies, the rise in violent crime, a very clear, very clear relationship, and the unprecedented epidemic of suicide among children and adolescents. Now, can we make any general statement from our knowledge of human development and from the medical literature concerning the relationship between presence or absence of parents and the emotional health of children? Can we say anything about that? Well, if there's any one factor that influences the character development and the emotional stability of an individual, it's the quality of the relationship he experiences as a child with his parents. And I use the word he in a generic sense here, meaning he and she. The difficulties encountered in homes today can be attributed in large measure to lack of time with the family and thus to a lack of emotional accessibility. We fail to meet one another's emotional needs because we are essentially absent from one another, from our wives and husbands, and especially from our children. We use the cliche, it's the quality and not the quantity of time that counts. But time and emotional accessibility are like the oxygen we breathe. Although the quality of the oxygen is important, the quantity determines whether we live or whether we die. A parent's inaccessibility, either physically, emotionally, or both, can exert a profound influence on the child's emotional health. A vast body of research during the past five decades led the World Health Organization to make this statement many years ago. Quote, what is believed to be essential for mental health is that the infant and young child should experience a warm, intimate, and continuous relationship with the mother." Unquote. In the years following that statement, research throughout the world has demonstrated that a separation from the mother, even for brief periods of time, and the quality of the mother's relationship with the child can profoundly affect both the child's physical and emotional health. 
and more recent research has demonstrated the full emotional impact on the child of the missing father, the inaccessible father. What has been shown over and over again to contribute most to the emotional development of the child is a close, warm, sustained, and continuous relationship with both parents, especially the mother during the first three years of life. Yet certain trends in our society make this accessibility difficult today. And let's just look quickly at a, a few of these trends. The trend toward quick and easy divorce has a strong bearing on family life in this country. The ever-increasing divorce rate subjects an ever-increasing number of children to physically and emotionally absent parents. Secondly, the increasing number of married women with young children who have joined the labor force and work outside of the home has a profound impact on the family. Two career families compound the problem of emotional inaccessibility. That's not very popular to be stating these days. Single parent families where the mother is burdened with providing the children emotional support as well as economic support is an overwhelming problem in our society. Thirdly, there's a tendency of many of our colleges and universities to convey the notion that the role of parent is passe and to settle for the role is to settle for second-class citizenship. Many young women no longer feel free to stay home with children, and unless they can pursue a career while raising a family, they consider their lives a failure. Fourthly, the tendency to move frequently imposes great stress on the family. Parents often travel long distances as part of their work, and because of such travel, a parent may be absent from home for many days or for weeks at a time. The job also frequently causes the whole family to move. We've only begun to understand the enormous psychological uprooting that a move can have on a family. And then last but not least, the television, the obtrusion of the television set into the American home has had an impact on the family that we've not yet even begun to understand. When parents are home physically, television often interferes with the meaningful interaction between members of the family and poses another of a growing number of reasons to keep that television set turned off. These are but a few of the trends in our society that foster parental inaccessibility. And these trends, I believe, exert an extremely negative influence on the family, primarily because they contribute to a change in child rearing that has been taking place in this country during the past few decades. The change is this. In American homes today, childcare has shifted from parents to other agencies, to agencies outside of the home. A home in which both parents are available to the child emotionally as well as physically has become in some areas of our society the exception rather than the rule. And I refer not only to the disadvantaged home where the father is missing and the mother has to work, I refer also to the most affluent homes. Cross-cultural studies have shown that the United States parents spend considerably less time with their children than almost any other nation in the world. In most other countries studied, emotional ties between children and parents are stronger and the time spent together considerably greater than in the United States. In some of these countries, fathers have said they would never let a day go by without spending at least an hour or two with their sons. And a well-known study now that's been around for many, many years in the Boston area has shown that the time 
Boston fathers spend with their young sons is on the average uh, about 37 seconds a day. Now, a child experiences an absent or emotionally inaccessible parent has rejection, and rejection inevitably breeds resentment, anger, and alienation. Depending on the age of the child, the particular emotional makeup of the child, and the sex of the parent who's missing, the child, when he becomes an adult, may experience various kinds of crippling emotional difficulties. You say, all right, <laughs> you've made your point. Perhaps parents are not as accessible today. But really, most hardworking, successful, say, business executives, business people, and professionals, take physicians, they've never been accessible to their children. And you may be right. They probably never have been. I might share here a little bit about my own profession. Now, it's interesting that children of physicians have three times the number of psychiatric problems as those from non-physician families. It's very interesting when you realize that physicians, of all people, ought to be aware of some of these trends. But who can criticize them? After all, they're doing such good work. But when that work is done at the expense of those that they're primarily responsible for, what is good work becomes, I think, uh, less so when it's at the expense of those they, of their own family. Well, you say you've made your point, but what hard evidence do you have that it does harm? You've presented suggestive evidence, clinical observations, but nothing conclusive. Well, there is data, and my data comes from some of my own research and the research of others reported in the literature. Just like to share a little bit of that with you. I began uh, alluding to my clinical experience and some of my research from that. My interest in the impact of parental absence began while doing research on college students. And at that time, I noticed a cluster of symptoms among a rather significant number of undergraduate men at that time. The syndrome included this. There was an unusual preoccupation with motor vehicles, especially the motorcycle. Many of these were referred by the orthopedic surgeon, treating them because of serious accidents. There was a history of accident proneness that extended to early childhood. There was a persistent fear of bodily injury. There was extreme passivity and inability to compete academically, athletically, or in other areas of their life. There was a defective self-image, poor impulse control, and a propensity to use drugs. There was concern over being sexually impotent, and an intense homosexual concern. And there was a distant, in every one of them, a distant conflict-ridden relationship with the father. These were all Harvard undergraduate men. Now, these young men had in common a highly successful father. It was interesting that they all came from homes where the father was unusually successful. And at that time, I wrote in the American Journal of Psychiatry, quote, the young man sees the father has all-powerful, critical, and one with whom it is hopeless to compete. Each patient within my sample feared his father, and as a young boy learned to avoid him. The father of these patients are highly successful in their careers. Several had had the unusual quality of being outstanding both as athletes and scholars making them, of course, more formidable competitors to their sons. So the sons kind of just 
gave up. They were impossible to compete with. And they had this passive attitude toward all authority and to the world generally. I often informally referred to these young men as suffering from the famous father syndrome, where the father gave them everything but himself. This paper, when I published it many years ago, seemed to attract a lot of attention. Time magazine wrote quite a long summary of it, and, and CBS had a program called the uh, Motorcycle Syndrome that they talked about some of these findings. So from my clinical research, from my clinical experience, and from my research with college students, I began to notice this. One, that a large number suffered from incapacitating emotional symptoms, but they seem to have in common a number of traumatic early experiences with a rejecting, inaccessible, or absent parent. And when we looked at their histories carefully, there appeared to be some causal relationship between the early experience and the emotional illness they suffered as adults. And then I began another research project studying several hundred young men who dropped out of college for emotional reasons. And two characteristics of this group were one, a marked isolation and alienation from their parents, especially their fathers, and two, an overwhelming apathy and lack of motivation. In addition, many of those who had the most serious illness, that is those hospitalized and diagnosed as schizophrenic, that among this group, a large number had lost one or both parents early in life through death. And when compared with several control groups, this finding proved highly significant statistically. And this provided me with my first real clue that there might be an association between a missing parent, an absent parent, and emotional illness later on in life. And as I became more involved in my research and began to gather experience with patients clinically, I began to realize that absence through death was, of course, the most overt, the most severe kinds of absence, but there were lots of other kinds of absence. Parents could be absent because of emotional illness. Parents could be absent because of time-demanding jobs. Parents could become absent, of course, more and more in our society because of divorce. And the more recent research on parental absence focuses on separation from parents as a result of a divorce. The divorce rate in our country has risen about 700%, 700% in this century. Most of this rise has occurred during the 70s and 80s, and it continues into the 90s. About half of the people, half of, of children under 18 growing up in this country, grew up in a home with one or both parents missing. And we could talk in great detail about the effect of divorce on children, and it's profound. It's a profound effect. Let me just, I won't go into it in detail, but let me say, uh, you often hear that parents should never stay together for the sake of the children. And I could never understand that. I can never understand what better reason would there be to stay together and to work out difficulties, to be reconciled, than for the sake of your children. Well, these early studies on parental absence focus primarily on the absence of the mother and can be summed up as follows. The research showed that when a child is separated from its mother permanently and not provided adequate substitute care, the infant becomes visibly distressed and is subject to high risk for both physical and psychological disturbances in development. 
When a child is separated from its mother unwillingly, even for brief periods of time, the child shows visible distress, and when placed in a strange environment and cared for by a succession of strange people, the distress becomes more intense. The reaction follows a typical sequence. The child first protests vigorously and tries desperately to recover the mother. Later, the child seems to despair of recovering her, although he remains preoccupied with her return. And still later, if she does not return, the child seems to lose interest in her and to become emotionally detached from her. And these early studies have considerable relevance to recent trends in our society, where, as I mentioned, an increasing number of mothers with young children work and where the care of children is relegated to agencies outside of the home. Other studies focused on the absence of the father. And just to mention very quickly, one well-known study is in a military camp where the fathers were absent because of military duty, and the children ranged from 3 to 18 years of age. The researchers found early reaction to the father's departure resembled reaction to children who lose a father through death. Very interesting. One, there was rageful protest over the desertion. Children became angry about it. Then they began to deny that he was listening and would form an intense fantasy relationship with the parent, often talking on the phone, pretending that he was on the phone or that he was in the room. Three, there were efforts at reunion, trying to get him back. Four, irrational guilt and a need for punishment. Five, exaggerated separation anxieties and fear of being abandoned. And six, a decrease in impulse control and a wide variety of regressive symptoms they found among these children. The researchers noted that when the father left home, the child was often allowed to do things not otherwise permitted. And this made it difficult for the child to internalize a consistent set of standards for controlling his behavior. In several instances, the father's leaving was followed by disobedience, a decline in school performance, and aggressive antisocial behavior. The child seemed unable to control himself, and that loss of control is especially interesting to a psychiatrist because most of the problems that we see in our offices today, unlike 20 years ago, have to do with an inability to control one's impulses. Several other recent studies bear on the absence or inaccessibility of the father. They all point to the same conclusion. A father absent for long periods contributes to low motivation for achievement, inability to defer immediate gratification for later rewards, low self-esteem, susceptibility to group influence, and to juvenile delinquency. The absent father tends to have passive, dependent sons lacking in achievement, motivation, and independence. Now, these are general findings, of course, with many exceptions, but they're interesting in, in light of their trends. So, when we consider the scientific and medical literature, we find an impressive body of data based on carefully controlled experiments that corroborate the impression that a parent's absence through death or divorce or time-demanding job can exert a profound influence on a child's emotional health. The magnitude of this research paints an unmistakably clear picture of the adverse effects of parental absence and inaccessibility. Now, why has society almost totally ignored this data? You don't hear about it very much. Very seldom do you hear about it. And I think the reason is that it's 
data that we don't want to hear because it demands a change in our lifestyle and in our priorities. And it's very similar to the data on cigarette smoking that we had. We had wonderful data on cigarette smoking years, decades before we began to pay attention to it. And we ignored it because it demanded a change in lifestyle. People didn't want to hear it. And it was only after the computers began to come into the picture in, in the early 60s and the data became overwhelming that finally we began to pay attention to it. And of course, now we hear about it all the time. All right, what do we know then about successful families, healthy families? What do we know about families that stay together? Once in a while, one sees what appears to be an ideal family. The parents have a deep respect and concern for one another, and the kids a healthy sense of who they are and some sense of where they're going. They're rare, but they're there. Though by no means free of conflict or adversity, they seem to have resources to draw on that help cope with and resolve that conflict. And if you enter that home, you find it a warm, nurturing, a comfortable place to be, and you understand why parents, as well as the children, hurry back to it once they leave. As the children mature, they too have a deep love and respect for one another. And when they marry, they seem to reproduce the same kind of ideal family. Now, what does research reveal about these families? What do they have in common? Well, several national and cross-cultural studies of families show that strong, healthy families have a number of common denominators. And let me just share a few of them with you. One, the parents have a high degree of commitment to the concept of family and a strong commitment to their own family. They give the family the highest priority. The family plays a key role in the way they order their lives. And it just doesn't happen. They find time to spend together, and they know how to spend this time profitably in a way that permits them to be emotionally as well as physically accessible to one another. Three, I have observed that in most of these families, one parent, often but not always the mother, makes the family their primary responsibility, in essence gives their life to fulfilling that responsibility. As I said, successful families just don't happen. And three, they embrace a philosophy of life that provides a spiritual dimension for the family. Most of these families possess a strong faith that helps bind them together and provides resources they can draw on to help cope with crisis and with adversity. How does faith help a family to establish stability and strength? Well, first, when we look at the Judeo-Christian faith, we find that it gives a new perspective on the family and places it very high on the list of priorities. If we turn to the scriptures, read the two great commandments, free of the aura of religiosity and piousness that is so repugnant to most of us, if we really read them objectively, we find more wisdom about how to live with meaning and abundance and fulfillment than all of the scientific knowledge acquired since the beginning of time. Now this wisdom is perhaps most succinctly expressed in what Christ referred to as the two great commandments. The first, to love God with all of our soul and heart and mind and strength. And the second, to love our neighbor as ourselves. The two great commandments make clear that our lives, if we are to find fulfillment, must focus first and foremost 
on our relationships. First, our relationship with the Creator, and secondly, our relationship with others. These documents indicate clearly that until we establish this vertical relationship and give it first priority, we'll continue to experience some sense of loneliness and emptiness. Once we establish this relationship, we then have resources to carry out the difficult second commandment, our second priority of loving our neighbors ourselves. When the Lord was asked, who is my neighbor? You remember he told the story of the Good Samaritan, which implies that our neighbor is the first person we come across in need. Because we all have needs, then the first person we come across is our family. So first priority, our vertical relationship. Second priority, our horizontal relationship, first and foremost, our family. So a strong faith helps, first of all, by establishing clearly our priorities. A second way fosters stability and strength in a home is by giving a new standard for our relationships, a new standard for loving, and that's referred to as agape, a Greek word that we find in the New Testament, and it's the word that's used in love when love is used in the, in the two great commandments. And agape is a unique kind of love, as I understand it, a love that's devoid of sentimentality, yet considerably more than kindness. It's a love based not primarily on feeling, but on the will. You want the best for the other person, and then you do it, whether you feel like it or not. We carry it out by exertion of the will. It contributes to how we feel, even though it's not based primarily on feeling. Agape involves stepping out of our own needs sufficiently to become aware of the needs of others and then acting to meet those needs, whether we feel like it or not. Agape, therefore, involves thought, effort, time, accessibility, and at times self-sacrifice and self-denial. It's a difficult kind of love to practice. It's very difficult. It's kind of unnatural. But it's the key to all successful relationships especially our relationships within the family. And then quickly, faith also fosters forgiveness. The capacity to forgive is absolutely essential in all of our relationships, especially the close, intimate relationships within the family, where the very closeness makes others particularly vulnerable to our selfishness and to our other shortcomings. Those families who follow the scriptural admonition to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. In that scripture, you have a formula that can contribute significantly to maintaining family stability. Let me just close with making a couple of recommendations. I think we need to encourage our children and our families to place high priority on the family. Teach them early that the family is significant and one of the most significant aspects of their lives. We need to schedule time out each day with the family until it becomes a habit. If possible, spend some of the time alone with each member, focusing on their interests and needs. If we're traveling, we need to call them at the time we usually spend with them when home. It takes less than 60 seconds to call, to ask about them, and express our concern from them. This small investment of time yields 
enormous dividends. It's the regularity and the consistency that's important. Nothing contributes more to the self-esteem of a spouse and of a child, whether this child is three years old or 30, than our continuous and consistent emotional accessibility. We must encourage our companies to give high priority to the family so that the conferences and conventions no longer take employees away from family for days or weeks, but whenever possible, include the family. We need to encourage an atmosphere where an individual can refuse to be moved to another location so as not to uproot the young family without being removed from his or her rung on the ladder for refusal to move, where mothers who must work will be provided facilities for superb care of their children and the time to visit them during the day. Last but not least, we must give consideration not only to the economic and emotional provisions for the family, but also their spiritual needs by embracing a personal faith and introducing a spiritual dimension to our family. We provide them not only answers to questions of purpose and meaning and destiny, but also an increased capacity for love and for forgiveness and a reservoir of resources to draw on for resolving conflict and crisis in their lives. So, in a sentence or two, in summary, we need a radical change in our thinking about the family. We need a society where people have the freedom to be whatever they choose to be. But if they choose to have children, then those children, I think, must be given the highest priority. Thank you very much. A question and answer session followed Dr. Nikolai's talk. The questions will be repeated here to place the answers in context. First question. One of the things that you mentioned is impulse control and a loss of that which is a byproduct of absent parents. Could you explain a little bit more what that exactly means? If I understood it correctly, it seems as if with the absence of impulse control, we're going to have significant problems introducing agape love into our family dynamics because agape love is in some ways the ultimate impulse control. It is the will to love whether or not I feel like it. Are we going to be drawing a whole new generation with this kind of dysfunction into a vicious cycle? And do you have advice on how to break that cycle? Yeah, about 20 years ago, I was asked to give a paper on the family. And I predicted at that time that unless changes were made to stop what was happening to the family, the breakup of the family, that we would be seeing an enormous increase in violent crime, that our cities would become unsafe. And I gave a whole series of predictions. It wasn't very difficult to do if you just watched what was going on. But all of them have become true. And the thing is that if you look at our society today, there's a great deal of confusion about how to behave. You know, things that were thought to be extraordinarily unacceptable before are now everyday happenings. At one time, there were seven people killed in the city of Chicago. The Valentine Day Massacre, if you remember. Seven people were killed. And it was on the front pages of the papers across the country for months. Now we have that many people killed in one day, in one city. It's not even mentioned nationally. But we're used to that. I mean, the, the number of people that are killed, the children that are killing one another, what's going on is 
absolutely, it's happened so gradually that we've become more and more used to it. But it's absolutely astounding that we have a generation now growing up where if they feel like doing something, they do it. I mean, if you make me angry, I kill you. I don't have very much value for myself because of my family upbringing. I don't have value for you and for your life. So I take it. I mean, that's the kind of society that we're involved in now. And it's very true that, you know, children internalize controls from their relationship with their parents, especially with their fathers. The father, for some reason, when he's absent, the child has more difficulty internalizing controls. If you have a family now where the parents are accessible and where they can teach this kind of love, that is the quintessence of inner control, is this kind of love, where you act whether you feel like it or not. You know, to love your enemy, I mean, it's very difficult to feel positive towards your enemy if he's kicking you in the shins and causing you pain. You're not asked to do that. You're asked to love him in the New Testament sense of the word, which means to will the best for them and act accordingly. You have control over that. So you have control over your will. You have control over your actions. You don't have control over how you feel. You have control over how you express your feelings. So you're not asked to do something that's humanly impossible, but it's vitally important. It's the most difficult part of our Christian walk, but it's vitally important to our relationships, especially our relationships within the family and within society. Second question. I have a hard time understanding suicide. One researcher said that the only difference between urban and suburban youth is that urban youth kill each other, while suburban youth kill themselves. The commonality here is that both feel that their lives have no value. I struggle to understand this fact, and I wonder what you can say beyond what you have already said about suicide amongst suburban teenagers. We have a very unusual society. For the first time, I think, in the history of the human race, we have an epidemic of suicide among children and adolescents. Every 12 months in this country, about 300,000 people, over a quarter of a million people, decide that their lives aren't worth living and attempt to take it. Just think of that. And about 30,000 succeed. And a large number of these are children and adolescents. And when you think about it, life is very complicated and it's difficult. And if you don't have a family that's intact, it's extraordinarily difficult. And there isn't much hope. Why bother to live if life is filled with pain and disappointment and loneliness? Unless we can establish within a home that kind of faith, which we as a culture has turned away from, we've become a very secular culture, Unless we can turn back to our spiritual roots and provide this kind of spiritual resource that I've been talking about, we're raising a generation without hope. See, I think if Christ brings anything to a life, he brings hope. We all need that to want to live and to continue living, a life that is at best complicated and difficult. Thank you very much. For more information, visit theologyofwork.org, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter 
at Theo Work Project.